The Rural Health Voice, Episode 27, Mobile Integrated Health. Welcome to the Rural Health Voice. I am Beth O'Connor, your host. We discuss rural health issues at the grassroots level and how state and federal policies play out in our local communities. What are rural ambulance services doing to reduce unnecessary visits to the emergency room? Tim Perkins, Chatter Division Manager at the Virginia Office of Emergency Medical Services, reviews some new possibilities to improve access. Well, hello, Tim. Hi, Beth. So you are the Chatter Division Manager at the Virginia Office of Emergency Medical Services. So starting out, just tell us what Chatter is, other than you running your mouth. Um, I know. I get that a lot. Everybody says to me that that's a perfect acronym for a division that I'm involved with. Um, Chatter is Community Health and Technical Resources. Essentially, it's... um, the Office of EMS is taking a little bit more of a broader look at um, healthcare. I mean, for years, it's usually been the you call, we haul kind of mentality and emergency and lights and sirens and 911. And we're starting to look at um, EMS a little bit more globally and more of um, our role as more of a part of the healthcare system instead of just, you know, somebody who, or a group of individuals who just, you know, take care of people emergently. Obviously the, the E part of EMS hasn't really changed, but what, what we're, we're looking to do both the office of EMS itself and, and EMS as a whole is kind of changing a little bit. And so our division is trying to stay in, in the middle of that change and stay ahead of that change. And so we have community health and technical resources. At the Rural Health Voice Conference, you are leading a session titled Mobile Integrated Health. So mobile, is that like having a virtual visit for my doctor on my iPad? Um, it could be. Um, the, the cool thing about mobile integrated healthcare is that it's still a very, very new concept um, in EMS, and it's, um, it's extending healthcare to um, underserved populations for sure. And it just kind of gives it a little bit of a, a different look. And if um, an agency or a system wants to create a, a telemedicine program or, or have an aspect of their program that incorporates telemedicine and they have the, the infrastructure to do it, then, then yeah, absolutely. Okay. So what other options are there for mobile integrated health? So what, what it's looking at is... Um, um, Reducing um, readmissions, I think everybody, probably most of the people who are listening to this know that that CMS is taking a really strong look at uh, readmission rates and things of that nature. And mobile integrated healthcare is um, a means for for EMS providers to um, be involved in the care of patients, especially post-discharge, especially in the first 24, 36 hours before home health may kick in. Um, take care of minor things that may not require uh, a visit to a medical facility or re- a readmission to the hospital. And then um, it can also involve um, transport to alternate destinations. So we, we all know um, that there's a lot of underserved populations um, in Virginia. There's places in the state that have some real um, real significant gaps in access to health care. And 
um, EMS is trying to trying to be a partner in, in bridging those gaps. Okay. So it could be a visit for my doctor on my iPad, but it could be almost an old fashioned house call. Yeah. Um, it, it really could be, it could be anything. I mean, most of what we've talked about when, when we've discussed this is, um, things like wellness checks, um, mental health evaluations, um, referrals to other healthcare providers that, you know, don't involve a trip to the ER, um, immunization, immunization clinics, um, opioid screenings. Obviously everybody has, has opioid on, on their mind these days. And, and we have a, a role in that. Um, so I think those are the kind of things that, that mobile integrated healthcare kind of, um, involves and kind of focuses on, at least in terms of, you know, what the, what the program consists of and, and what, um, what kind of the goals are. If an EMS team provides mobile health in addition to traditional EMS services, does that create an extra burden for them? Don't they wind up having to do more? So um, hopefully it doesn't really, hopefully it doesn't really work that way. Um, what we're looking at, um, ideally it would be an agency who is able to, um, able to handle 100% of their 911 calls. Um, as I like to tell people, my, my parents live in a really rural area. They have one ambulance that serves their area primarily. And the idea is that we wouldn't want to have an EMS crew doing wound care on one side of town while, you know, my dad is having, um, our myocardial infarction on the other side of town or some real emergent, um, you know, injury or illness. The idea is, is that it adds to what the, what the agency and what the agency's providers are doing, but not necessarily to put a burden on, on the agency. It's, it's to enhance the service that that agency is providing to the customers of, of where they, where they provide care. So they would really need a robust capacity in terms of both staff and vehicles to do both the traditional EMS type of things and the more almost kind of like a home health sort of situation. Yeah, we're we're trying to avoid actually calling it home health because obviously we don't want to step on the toes of, of those who actually do provide what, what people consider to be traditional home health. But when you when you think about it, you have an EMS agency who um, you know, a crew arrives at the station at seven o'clock in the morning, for example, they get in, they get report from the offcoming crew. Um, they do a rig check. And then, you know, I'm not saying that the EMS providers have a lot of downtime, but there's, there's some downtime in there. And if, um, a program is running at its optimum, the, you know, they could schedule visits to patients, um, you know, throughout the day. And, you know, if, if they have, um, a visit to Ms. Jones just for a wellness check at 11 o'clock in the morning and they, they have a EMS call, you know, that prevents them from doing it. It's at least it's one thing that they could, you know, always go back and see Ms. Jones at a different time instead of, you know, uh, a situation where Ms. Jones has an emergent issue and needs to be rushed to the hospital. So really what it is, is it's enhancing the care that's provided to the community, but it's also, if it's, if it's done correctly, it's, it's provided in a way that, that doesn't increase the burden on the, the system and the crews and things like that. As I said, obviously 
providing 911 service is the priority, but there's also room for additional services to be provided. Do you think this would lead to the need for additional training for EMS staff? Are there, you know, more things they're going to need to know to be able to to provide this level of service? So um, that's one of the things that's that's kind of being um, debated in the EMS community um, right now. Actually, we have a a mobile integrated healthcare community paramedicine work group um, that's working right now on on trying to best determine the course of best implementing MIH and CP programs um, in in the Commonwealth. And one of the things they're trying to decide on is whether or not a a paramedic needs extra special training to be able to provide mobile integrated healthcare or an EMT needs specialized training to be able to do it as as well, or whichever, you know, training level, you, you know, a provider has. The idea is that some people think that that there is a need for that, that, you know, there's specialized care that, that's being provided um, and that there needs to be increased focus on like the social service aspect of it and everything like that. But there's also a, a camp that's of the train of thought that, you know, a paramedic is or an EMT or an EMS provider isn't operating out of the scope of their certification when they're providing service under a mobile integrated healthcare umbrella, if you will. So, there's there's kind of two sides of that argument, and we haven't really determined which which one is is the absolute. There are some places in the country that are providing um, extended training to their providers, and there are other um, agencies in the country that are literally just they're operating the program with the same amount of training that providers get to get their certification in the first place. Now, thinking again about capacity, one of the things we know about many of our rural EMS systems is they're still very much reliant on volunteers. Is is this is mobile health feasible with a volunteer system? Um, it would depend on it would depend on the system. Obviously, if you have an EMS agency, um, as I said in the beginning, that that is handling all of the nine one one calls and is able to provide. Um, mobile integrated healthcare services on top of that, then, then yeah, absolutely. The, the, the challenge is, and, and we've talked about this before is, um, you know, uh, volunteerism is on the decline. We still have, um, about two thirds of the agencies in the Commonwealth are volunteer, but, but we know that, you know, volunteer numbers are down and it affects the ability for agencies to provide 911 care, let alone anything in addition to that. So could an agency that is 100% volunteer be able to, to launch an MIH program? Yeah, in a perfect world, absolutely. But the reality is, is that the staffing may or may not be there for them to be able to provide extended services other than, you know, the, the traditional 911 service that, that we're used to, to seeing from EMS agencies. Is mobile health being implemented in some communities in Virginia at this point? So we do have we do have two programs that are that are going on in Virginia that are pretty successful, but um, but for a few different reasons that may not necessarily be be applicable to every single ambulance service and rescue squad in the state. Um, Chesterfield County Fire and EMS has a pretty successful program, and then Central Central Health in the Lynchburg area has a pretty successful program. The reason why those programs are really successful is they're a they're well organized and b they're well funded. Um, 
Chesterfield County is able to, um, they've been able to have a good program because they've been able to work with their community partners, um, social services and the, and the medical facilities in their area to be able to, to extend their, their own service. And they have, they have the staffing and they have the infrastructure to be able to support it. Centra has the same. They also have the staff and the infrastructure to support it, but they're also feeding themselves patients. They have patients that are in their health system. They're being discharged. They'll meet a patient that's being discharged will meet with um, a crew or a representative of, of their um, EMS program before they're even discharged to talk about post-care and talk about what kind of services that the MIH program will be providing to that patient even before they're discharged. So we do have programs that are operating in the, in the state. Um, they're under kind of special circumstances that they are. And like I said, the, the primary reasons why they're, they're so successful is they're well-organized, they're well-staffed, and they're well-funded. That said, the common, like one of the common cliches that goes around with mobile integrated healthcare is if you've seen one MIH program, you've seen one MIH program. And we can't say definitively that the way they do it in Chesterfield and the way they do it at Centra can be done, you know, in some of the rural counties of Virginia and some of the other areas where where there's a gap in healthcare. So you said that being organized and well funded are, you know, some of the baseline of what you need. What have you seen as the biggest hurdle in developing a mobile health program? So the the biggest hurdles so far are um, obviously the funding aspect because, um, you know, it, it costs money to provide a service. And traditionally, EMS is, is able to bill based on being tra- transporting patients to a hospital. They haven't necessarily been able to bill for for treat no transport. Actually, for a long time, it's been a billing code of treat no transport where they aren't able to recoup funds. So it's a it's a real a, a change of a dynamic um, of what traditionally hasn't been able to be billed or hasn't been able to be um, charged to a patient for things like you know medications and and fuel and things like that for for treat no transport. Um, a couple years ago, Anthem Blue Cross Blue Shield decided that they were going to launch a program where they were going to start. Um, allowing EMS agencies to bill for treat no transport. And then um, earlier this year, CMS um, released um, information about a program known as um, Emergency Triage Treat and Transport. It's called ET3. Um, It's supposed to help um, with transportation of individuals to um, other destinations and have treatment provided by other healthcare practitioners other than what tradition, you know, traditional healthcare models have shown. Um, it, there's still a lot of wait and see with the ET3 program. Um, the the application for that program is still um, hasn't hasn't come to its deadline yet, and there's a lot of wait and see about how it's gonna how it's gonna actually turn out. So the biggest that's the biggest thing, and then. The other big thing is just is resources. Um, you know, does an agency have enough providers to be able to provide the service? Do they have vehicles that they can, you know, have set aside just to provide MIH um, and, you know, implement their program that way? So those are kind of the big hurdles right now that are kind of holding up the process. In addition to the fact that 
it's still a it's still a new program. There's still a lot of parts of it that aren't quite familiar to people. There's still parts of it that kind of tiptoe along other healthcare practitioners like home health and the EMS community at large is trying to do this, you know, the right way where we're not stepping on toes and allowing, you know, other um, healthcare providers to do their thing as well. So if those are the speed bumps in the process, what are the major benefits? Well, the major benefits, um, at least the way we look at it, is um, obviously it's it's providing a service to um, a community or, or a patient population who may not be able to get it otherwise. To be able to, um, you know, go see a patient, uh, you know, 24 hours after discharge and help them with, you know, make sure they're compliant with their meds and make sure that their, you know, dressings may or may not need to be changed or, you know, if it's if it's um, a couple with a new baby, you know, whether it's a preemie or whether it's, you know, a, a pregnancy with no complications whatsoever, it's, you know, making sure that they know how to take care of their child and, you know, make sure that the the mom is able to breastfeed and, and things like that. It's it's providing a little extra level of, of care outside the hospital that doesn't require, you know, a transport to an ED or something, you know, like an emergent intervention. It's something that's supportive. It's something to um, just kind of help the help the patient and help the patient family to better deal with what you know what chronic conditioner is going on or something that has just happened that they've just been discharged for. If a community wanted to start a mobile health program, what factors do they need to consider? Well, they need to consider um, what their what their needs are, what the, you know, a, a snapshot of what the population is, um, what, um, what number of patients, uh, is the, is the agency transporting and then are they transporting again? Like it's, it's a snapshot of to see if, you know, are we picking up John Doe, you know, five times a week and transporting him back to the same ED for the same COPD that he's been suffering with for, you know, X number of years. It's, um, can we afford it? Do we have the staff to be able to, to do it? Do we have, um, you know, the backing of medical direction? Do we have to have special protocols or are the protocols that we're working under sufficient? How are we going to pay for it? it? Those are the kind of aspects that agencies are, are taking into consideration. I had a phone call the other day from an agency that asked if they needed special medical insurance or if they needed special, you know, some kind of extra coverage because they're providing a service that, you know, traditionally hasn't really been something the EMS has, has done. So there's a lot to take into consideration. Um, you have to account for, you know, the wear and tear on vehicles and increased costs of, of things like, you know, fuel and, and things of that nature. So there's a lot that kind of goes into um, what to consider when you're getting ready to launch a program or considering launching a program. Now, if an individual was concerned about access to healthcare service in his or her community, what could they do? What steps could they take? Well, there's actually, there's a lot of different things. I mean, you can speak to your local physician or you could speak to your local health system or you could speak to your local health district or, or your local EMS service. Speak to some of the elected officials in, in the community and just kind of, you know, get a flavor for what, what, what's going on and whether, you know, whether or not there is a, a gap in healthcare in the area and what, you know, what all these people think about, 
if there is, um, what's the best way to address it, et cetera. MIH is, is certainly one option and, and, um, you know, hopefully it's, it's things that people will be considering as they consider, you know, as they discuss what changes need to happen to their local health system and, and what's best for the people of the community. And if you could do anything, what would you do to improve health and health care in rural America? Oh, geez. Uh, yeah, the million-dollar question. Um, if I had a magic wand, I would um, just start adding providers, adding vehicles, and making sure they're well-funded. I mean, that's that's what it boils down to is, um, you know, rural EMS, not just in Virginia but across the country, um, there, you know, there just aren't enough resources. People are trying to do the best with what they have, but, you know, a lot of times it, it just isn't enough. And, you know, we have situations where, you know, an ambulance in X County has to drive, you know, an hour and a half each way to transport a patient to a, to the closest facility. So I think if, if I had my druthers, it would be, uh, more money for, for personnel and for equipment and, you know, being able to, to support programs like MIH and just, you know, have them be able to be funded 100% and um, just kind of seeing a program like that flourish and providing, you know, better care to, to rural communities. Great. Well, thank you, Tim. Of course. It's my pleasure. That's Tim Perkins, Virginia Office of Emergency Medical Services, advocating for more resources to better support programs in rural communities. The Rural Health Voice will be taking a break to host our annual conference and enjoy the holidays. We will be back in January. Until 2020, you can still find the Virginia Rural Health Association on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and our website, vrha.org. The Rural Health Voice is the podcast of the Virginia Rural Health Association. It is sponsored by the Virginia State Office of Rural Health and underwritten by the National Rural Health Association.